One Friday morning in July of 1990, Cecil Mosqueda walked into Houston Police Department headquarters, ready to take on the pile of cases that had stacked up on his desk. But there wouldn't be time for old cases today. Because of the Chicano Squad's rotation, the next homicide that came in that required a Spanish-speaking detective would be his. As he got closer to his desk on the third floor, though, he could feel all eyes on him. A young woman's brutalized body had been found overnight. I remember some of the cases that really hit me real bad, real hard, are the female cases. They're real hard. Norma Torres had been raped and smothered with a pillow and left for dead inside her apartment. White homicide detectives had initially been called out. They made this scene and they said, well, there are a lot of Spanish speakers live out there and uh, we can't communicate and we're going to pass it over uh, to the Chicano squad because it's a Hispanic neighborhood. That was their way of, we don't want the case. No, we can't solve it, but we'll give it to you because it's Hispanic. That's the way it was. Norma Torres was 18, about the same age as Cecil Mosqueda's oldest daughter. Her common-law husband, George Davila, had come home from work on Thursday night and discovered her dead inside their apartment, on the bedroom floor. At first, he might have thought she was sleeping, but she looked awkward and uncomfortable. As he got closer, George realized her wrists were tied together and a pillow was covering her face. He shoved it away, but it was too late. She wasn't breathing. The sliding glass door stood open, and a chair that had been in front of it had been moved over. Clothes were strewn all around, some piled on her chest. Looked like she just got in from the laundromat and brought in her laundry because it was laying around there. So that's how they found her. No lead, no nothing. George Davila ran to the apartment complex office and yelled for someone to call the police. None of the night shift detectives spoke Spanish well enough, or cared to try, to canvas for potential witnesses. Valuable time had already been lost. No witnesses, no evidence, and no suspects. I'm Cristela Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. En esta ciudad hay necesidad, caught in the in-between, and swimming upstream. The crime scene where Norma Torres was killed was full of invisible clues thanks to a science that was just taking off. Houston police and other departments started using DNA as an investigative tool in the late 80s, and in 1995, Texas had established a DNA database of evidence and samples. 
Cecil knew the basics of DNA testing and asked the medical examiner to meticulously swab Norma Torres's body while the autopsy was underway. In Norma and George Davila's apartment, crime scene technicians gathered clothing, bed linens, towels, carpet swatches, and any other materials they could find. All of it, plus a clump of hair and a bloody footprint, would be sent off for DNA testing. Whatever blood I had or whatever evidence I had, and I took it to our crime lab. Back at Norma and George's apartment, on the top floor of a two-story building in Houston's Northside neighborhood, the yellow crime scene tape had all been removed, and neighbors had already left for work or to run their errands. This was when neighborhood policing really mattered. Cecil would have to convince people that they could trust him with what they knew. Pounding the pavement and knocking on doors, though, was a technique the Chicano squad officers had perfected. Cecil knocked on the door of the apartment beneath Norma and George, where a woman named Sylvia said she'd heard a struggle, a scream, and a thud, but hadn't called police and didn't see anyone leave. He suspected she knew more. The woman peered through the blinds every time she heard footsteps outside. But he could tell... Sylvia was afraid. He continued on, knocking on every apartment door. As he did, Sylvia watched him work. During Cecil's time on the squad, he'd given himself a nickname. Sentimental Cecil. It was a nod to his empathetic nature, which got him access to numerous Houstonians' homes and hearts. Every day, police officers are exposed to more trauma and brutality than many of us see in a lifetime. And many of them put up a barrier between their emotions and their work in order to get the job done. Cecil didn't maintain such a hard shell. He listened to people, held their hand if they needed, and always answered their phone calls, doing everything he could to get their crime solved, no matter how long it took. The Norma Torres murder investigation got off to a fast start, and then Cecil quickly hit a wall. He'd spent days interviewing all the neighbors he could, but no one had any useful information. Three weeks passed, and then, finally, Cecil got a break. He convinced Sylvia to talk to him again. And it turns out she indeed held a crucial missing piece of the case. Sylvia had seen a suspect. That guy, Sylvia said. She had seen him. She looked him straight in the eyes. The morning of the murder, Sylvia had woken up early. Around 7.45, she saw a man with tattooed arms leaning against the swimming pool fence. She'd seen him before and recognized him as someone who lived in the apartment complex. She tried to fall back asleep, but couldn't. There was too much noise coming from the apartment upstairs. She told Cecil it sounded like a struggle, a fight, followed by a muffled scream. That guy, I saw him when he walked out. From all that noise, I heard the noise upstairs. I heard the fumbling. I heard somebody stumping gun. I saw that guy walking out when it was said and done. 
That kind of commotion in the building wasn't that out of the ordinary or any of her business. She didn't call the police. A couple of hours later, Sylvia went to do laundry and noticed the sliding glass door to the balcony upstairs was open, even though it was about to rain. She assumed her neighbor might have just been careless. Then, as people started to come home from work for the evening, she heard George yelling frantically for help, and soon after, the complex was overtaken by detectives investigating a death. The struggle Sylvia had heard was obviously not ordinary at all. She watched from behind window blinds as the police investigated the murder scene. As she scanned the crowd of her neighbors, her eyes locked with someone else's. The man she'd seen hours before, leaning against the pool fence. When police knocked on Sylvia's door to ask her if she had seen or heard anything, she recalled the man's burning stare. She didn't want to come out. The crook was standing out there looking at the crowd like, what are the police looking at? Sylvia was a watchful neighbor and had seen the man before. She told Cecil he lived at the complex with his girlfriend. The apartment manager told him that the unit was empty. The last couple had been evicted a few weeks before. The man's name was Roland Salazar. It was a common name, but Cecil found a hit. Houston police had arrested a Roland Salazar before for robbery, and his fingerprints matched the ones police had lifted from Norma Torres' apartment. There was just one more confirmation Cecil needed. He pulled the man's photograph along with a few others to create a photo lineup, and sure enough, Sylvia picked out Roland Salazar. Are you sure? Yeah, and that guy's been there before. Cecil had enough evidence to bring Roland Salazar in, if he could find him. A month after Norma Torres was killed, Cecil tracked down Salazar's girlfriend, but... She moved on her life because the guy wasn't doing anything for her. She told Cecil she hadn't seen Salazar for a month. Cecil didn't buy it, though. Salazar was mean, she said. A volatile person who even beat her up on occasion. She gave Cecil a list of addresses where he might find Salazar. Every couple of days, Cecil swung by, hoping to find his suspect. The thing about it is, in, in following these kind of leads, you don't have a second chance. you got to think like a crook. One night, Cecil and his second wife were on their way home after a date when Cecil made a detour past one of Roland Salazar's addresses. And she says, well... Okay, I said, I'm just going to see if I see anything at this place. Because this is where the guy, he might be out there. I, I knew, I already had a picture of what he looked like. So it's late at night, and I drove by the house, and guess who's standing there? It was Roland Salazar, standing in the driveway, leaning against the front of a car. Cecil's mind raced, and then remembered that he had a passenger in tow. He dropped his wife off at the police station. Cecil called for backup, then raced back to the spot himself, praying that Salazar hadn't sent something and taken off. Cecil pulled up, and Salazar was still there. And I went back, and I made an arrest on this guy. Cecil knew Salazar was the killer. All the pieces fit. 
All that was left was a confession. So I had one shot. Him, not knowing that I already know everything about his personal life. Everything, what he was doing, who was he with, why he was there, knew about his girlfriend, where he's been. I knew everything about him. I already had done my homework. The next morning, he pulled Roland Salazar out of his jail cell for an interrogation. For two hours, Salazar maintained his innocence, explaining his day away with alibis that couldn't be verified. He told Cecil he would do anything to cooperate in the investigation and even consented to a polygraph test. But twice, when the polygraph machine was hooked up, Salazar refused to participate. Cecil then asked him if he'd submit blood, urine, and hair samples. Salazar agreed. Cecil spent the day giving Roland Salazar coffee, lunch, and anything else he asked for. But throughout it all, of course, he already had his story packed up. He already knew his story backwards and forward. After hours of work, we couldn't break the guy. Couldn't break the guy. Spent many hours interrogating. Couldn't break the guy. Cecil was devastated. After days of interrogating this guy, the guy never broke. And without a confession, Cecil knew the score. He had only one witness. It was a weak person. Didn't actually see him, but saw the guy in the crowd and saw him when he came out. That's not the strong witness. Just puts him there at the, at the scene. See what I'm saying? Cecil was sure he had the right guy, but he didn't have the right evidence to do anything about it. I remember telling the guy, I know it's you. I, my gut feeling was that, but I didn't have enough proof. I looked him straight in the eye. I'll be back for you. His last hope was the DNA he'd convinced Roland Salazar to submit. And I'm trying to get maybe something to put this guy in there, you know? And the crime lab comes out and tells me, well, nah, we don't have enough identifiers. I don't think that's going to be your guy. The DNA wasn't a match, the HPD crime lab said. And Roland Salazar walked out of the police station a free man. This young lady here was just starting her life and it was just taken away. And that's the thing that kind of sticks on me because these are kind of cases that, why did it happen? It had been 20 years since the murder of Jose Campos Torres, which led in part to the formation of the Chicano Squad. When the squad was first formed, it was in response to the abysmal relationship between the nearly all-white HPD and the exploding Latino population, and the rising murder rate in those neighborhoods. Murders that went almost entirely unsolved. By the end of 1997, the average national homicide clearance rate was 66%. That same year, though, the Chicano squad solved 39 of the 43 cases on their desks. A 91% case clearance rate nearly unheard of. Adrian Garcia was an officer with HPD and is now a county commissioner. These guys consistently had the best clearance rates in the division, and yet they had a harder population to contend with. I mean, people who didn't speak the language, obviously the same issues we face today, afraid of authority. Uh, some probably had immigration status concerns. But yet, 
their approach encourage the community to give them statements, be witnesses, provide confessions. They had a culturally competent approach. In April of 1998, Captain Richard Holland nominated the Chicano Squad for the esteemed Unit Citation Award. In his nomination letter, Captain Holland praised their high clearance rate, challenging caseload, and their success in chipping away at HPD's negative reputation among communities of color. A unit citation would mean the department would officially commend and publicly thank the Chicano Squad's lieutenant, sergeants, and 10 officers. But despite the captain's glowing reports and statistics, the decision was placed on hold again and again. The HPD Awards Committee, it seemed, didn't agree that the squad met the unit citation award criteria. But even if HPD didn't acknowledge the squad's success, others did. The National Latino Peace Officers Association Texas State Chapter invited Houston Police Chief Clarence Bradford to its convention in September of 1998, where the squad would be receiving the National Recognition Award. It was something to be proud of. Someone was seeing all the hard work they'd put in. But there was always more of that work to be done. So the Chicano squad, as they always had, kept their noses down and focused on their cases. Thirteen years passed. It was now 2003. All this time, and Cecil still occasionally looked at the picture of Norma Torres he kept on his bulletin board. For years, he held out hope that the evidence he'd meticulously and optimistically collected at the scene would eventually pay off and point irrefutably to Roland Salazar. Periodically, he'd ask other detectives to take a look at the file and see if he missed anything, but each time, all signs pointed to Roland Salazar. Then, Cecil got wind of the work that another homicide detective was doing at HPD, a guy named Boyd Smith. Smith had been going through unsolved cases where DNA had been collected and submitting DNA to the FBI to see if they could find a match in the national database. While it might seem obvious now, this was groundbreaking 20 years ago. I said, now that we got Boy Smith, Detective Smith, in charge of the DNA, I said, I want to retest it again. Maybe we missed something. Cecil wanted to submit the evidence they'd collected in the Norma Torres case all those years ago to the FBI system. I said, hey, Lieutenant, I said, this case right here, I want to work on it. I want to do the DNA again. I said, maybe they missed something. Cecil's lieutenant agreed to give it a shot. Cecil headed for Boyd's desk. And then we hear, we hear a gunshot. A gunshot inside police headquarters. Everyone froze. One officer was leaving a voicemail at the time. God dang, he said in the recorded message, and then turned around in his chair. Oh my God, he shot himself. Boyd Smith had committed suicide. Boyd Smith's glasses laid on the carpeted floor near his chair. His body was slumped against the window. The officer who was leaving the voicemail ran to Smith, dragged the 61-year-old man's body away from the window, and started to administer CPR. 
just as Cecil was about to ask Boyd Smith to reopen the Norma Torres case and retest the evidence, Smith was gone. Then we find out that we had issues in our crime lab, that some of the crime people that were in our crime lab got fired off and run off. Turns out, Boyd Smith's death was only a sliver of HPD's crime lab problems. The year before, local news reporters exposed a slew of problems at the lab. Evidence had been mismanaged, poorly stored, badly analyzed for years, and the lab itself was understaffed and underfunded. After an audit confirmed the bad press, the crime lab was shuttered. I didn't know where to go to. So the case stops there. Cecil tacked the newspaper clipping with Norma Torres' picture on it back up on his corkboard. As the injustice in Norma Torres' case ate away at Cecil, the Chicano squad was about to confront their own injustice. That's after the break. Through the years at the Houston Police Department, much had changed. But one thing remained consistent. The Chicano squad's lack of recognition by HPD. In 2004, the Chicano squad marked their 25th anniversary. And to the squad's surprise, their landmark was recognized by others outside the department. First was a commendation at Houston City Hall, where then-council members Carol Alvarado and Adrian Garcia proposed making August 24, 2004, HPD Chicano Squad Day, followed by a proclamation in the Senate chambers of the Texas Capitol. It was another nice recognition of the squad, and yet, in retrospect, even with the accolades in 2004, they never felt truly equal to other non-minority Houston Police Department officers. But it didn't matter. What really counted was solving cases. Over time, HPD improved its use of technology, evidence storage, and processes. In 2005, the department received a $180,000 federal grant to start a cold case unit, tasked specifically with going through unsolved cases to identify ones with solvability factors, or things like evidence, witness statements, and other stones yet uncovered. Someone in the unit picked up the Norma Torres case file and paid Cecil a visit in the Chicano squad offices. Hey, Mosqueda, you already developed a suspect. We'll run in there. The efficacy of DNA testing had improved tremendously in the years since Norma Torres' murder. And it turns out, the first attempt had given HPD bad results. He run the DNA? Bingo. That same guy. In 1990, when Cecil had meticulously gathered DNA, the concept was still very foreign to most people. Fifteen years later, that DNA made all the difference. The cold case detectives worked up an arrest warrant for the sexual assault and murder of Norma Torres. Roland Salazar was finally caught. Cecil refreshed himself on the case while preparing for trial a moment he'd envisioned for years. He didn't forget who I was. I said, I told you I had you. At last, Roland Salazar was convicted of raping and murdering Norma Torres and sentenced to life in prison. Cecil didn't really know what to say to her family. 
or what they'd want to say to him. I don't know. What do you tell these people? I did tell them I'm sorry it took a long time, but I knew I had the right guy. That's all I said. Roland Salazar, now 53 years old, remains held in the Michael Unit, a state prison for 3,000 men situated just outside of the Piney Woods of East Texas. He did not respond to a request for an interview. It took over a decade to get a conviction in the Norma Torres case. In all those years, Cecil had never given up. His advocacy had helped keep her case on HPD's radar, and his detective work had tied the man he'd suspected all along to the evidence that was key to solving the case. By 2005, Cecil and the Chicano Squad had been solving homicides for 26 years, bringing justice to victims and victims' families. And in all that time, they hadn't had much time to pay attention to whether they were getting justice themselves. In most of our talks with Chicano Squad members, they often downplayed incidents that sounded to us like bigotry. When asked specifically and directly, they often pushed back at the notion that they experienced racism at the hands of HPD. And yet, their memories were full of anecdotes depicting a squad that knew it was being treated differently. One day, not terribly long ago, Cecil was talking with a colleague, a lieutenant who'd been looking into some administrative matters at HPD. He said, hey, Mosqueda, I was reading back on the rules. Do you know they still keep y'all guys as uh, a support unit? They don't give you any credit for the cases you clear. I said, what? The squad had indeed started as a support unit, as translators, in fact back in 1979. But even before their 90-day trial period was over, the Chicano squad was handling their own cases, just like other homicide detectives. Yet their technical classification had never changed. No, that's not right. We're out there working on cases, going to trial on cases. We're doing... And yet, they say, oh yeah, guys, it's just a support unit. It was as if all of their hard work to make themselves a vital part of the police department had been in vain. They'd worked hundreds of hours of overtime, as they saw it well more than any other unit. Yet, when they tried to advance their skills through outside training in forensics, interviewing suspects, and evidence collection, there were no opportunities. They, they were dropping all the cases. And we cared, to be honest with you, we cared homicide for long. We took a load off of homicide. But they didn't want to give us no help. As a supervisor now, Cecil took his role seriously. He saw it as his responsibility to speak for himself and others on the squad who felt similarly unappreciated. At first, Cecil took his grievances up the chain of command. The department was not paying attention to her, and certainly our captain was not paying attention to what was going on or, or, or what we needed or what needed, changes need to be made. So I went through a different avenue. Cecil and others on the Chicano squad needed more muscle if they were going to actually force the department, once and for all, to treat them with the respect they'd worked so hard to get. One big problem was overtime. 
not that they weren't paid for working it, but that the Chicano squad was always expected to be available for it. Always. Well, we saw the disparity in the call-outs, the abuse. We were, you know, I mean, we were getting paid, okay? I mean, you know, I'm not going to decline that. We, we got paid. If we got called in, we got paid. The issue was that we did have a life. And so we're at their beck and call. Well, you're, you're a Chicano squad. You're supposed to be called out, and you're being called at any given moment that they want you to come out. In 2006, the president of a local union for Hispanic law enforcement personnel, called the Organization of Spanish-Speaking Officers, or OSO, proposed filing a lawsuit and sponsoring it. And soon, they were off on a path of legal action. They were going to file a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where anyone can submit a complaint that they are being treated unfairly at work because of their race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability, age, or genetic information. They weren't the only Latinos at HPD with stories of bias and discrimination. And soon, the Chicano Squad's complaints grew to include other officers' complaints too. The case was eventually filed under the names of a Latino father and son duo. On the plus side, there might be strength in numbers. However, as the number of plaintiffs ballooned, the complaint became less about the Chicano Squad's grievances and more broad in scope. Just before Christmas in 2007, the lawsuit and EEOC complaint were filed with the Department of Justice, listing 23 complainants, including 10 members of the Chicano Squad. I took it upon myself. Now, I was a supervisor. That didn't go well with the department. I, I know I became a target at that time. I became a target. There's no doubt in my mind. Once I file that, you don't bite the hand of Fiji. Once I did that, there was a lot of people upset because uh, the whole complaint went to the Department of Justice, too. The city, upon getting notice of the complaint, started an investigation of their own. Craig Farrell, a former police officer, was the department's lawyer at the time and represented the city in the lawsuit. My memory is it was kind of a shotgun blast type complaint. There was several different things that were alleged. I was in charge of kind of getting our response ready. And first thing we do is we wanted to investigate it. We take all of those complaints serious. And so we got the complaint. We immediately wanted to dig in to determine was there merit to it. Adrian Garcia, a retired policeman who'd been elected to the Houston City Council in 2003, told his peers on council that there undoubtedly was, from his vantage point. Obviously, in lawsuits of this nature, city council or government in general is going to be defensive. They're going to protect their interests. But I let it be known that I had too much knowledge about this case, that I understood what these officers had gone through. And having represented other Hispanic officers and other causes similar to the Chicano squad, I made sure that the mayor would understand that these are not just disgruntled employees. These are officers who were really worked like dogs and that what they were arguing was entirely legitimate. Craig Farrell does not believe the squad's legal argument had merit. Sure, 
There may have been incidents that could have been handled better, but that happened to everyone in the department, regardless of race, he says. Not everyone who doesn't get an assignment or get the promotion or get whatever it is that they're wanting is being discriminated against. They just didn't get it. They weren't the best. Were they discriminated against? I would 100% say no. Were they treated differently? Yes. Why? Because they were the Chicano squad. They were going to get as many specialty cases that required their skills as came up. Meanwhile, for Cecil Mosqueda and the other complainants, life was hell. If the squad had felt neglected and under-resourced before, now it definitely was. I was always outspoken. I spoke my mind. And they didn't like the way I spoke. And if I see wrong, I would tell you. And they didn't like. There was, um, like one captain told me, he says, hey, uh, they don't like you. The captain told me, he said, why? They just don't like your demeanor, your outlook, or whatever. Jaime Escalante felt the backlash. Years before, he'd hoisted a Mexican flag over his desk. But now, one of his sergeants was telling him that their lieutenant wanted Jaime's flag gone. And I go, okay, but there's a Confederate flag over there. There's a flag from England and uh, another Confederate flag over there. They need to take the flags down before I take mine down. The flag stayed up, except Jaime's, the Mexican flag which somehow kept ending up on the floor of the office. The Chicano squad as a whole felt like they were being punished, it seemed. They weren't allowed to use take-home cars like they had before. So if they had to come in for a scene at night, the detectives first had to come to the office to check out a car. The cars that were assigned to the squad, Jaime told the chief, were falling apart. Narcotics and vice squads had fancy flip cell phones. But meanwhile, homicide officers barely had working pagers. Even worse, Cecil had heard that their captain wanted to abolish the night shift. So day shift officers would go back to taking rotations once more, working inconsistent schedules that veteran officers like themselves were typically immune from. They'd already put in that time and proven themselves. I said, I got a life to live too. I don't want to be called out during the middle of the night after I work the day shift. Meanwhile, the city of Houston's legal team fought the discrimination complaint hard, and the Oso lawyers couldn't keep up. Oso hired a new legal team, but as Jaime remembers it, they wanted more money. Pretty much everything fell apart because, you know, who, who's going to donate money? The Oso organization doesn't have that much money. In the homicide office, the Chicano squad's workload lightened to a trickle which was unusual for the group of officers used to working twice as hard as anyone else. It's hard to say exactly why they weren't called out as much as before, but to the squad, it felt like they were being iced out. It was never about the money. We weren't looking for money. We just wanted changes. But in 2010, with Cecil and the other complainants out of money, all parties agreed to dismiss the case. The lawsuit kind of went away. The city managed to quash it and didn't go anywhere. After the case fizzled out, the officer, who was the named party in the original complaint, was demoted and accused HPD of retaliation. 
That case was eventually appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case and let a lower court's decision stand that sided with the officer, forcing the city to pay $150,000 in damages. But the Chicano squad did not get the justice they were seeking. In fact, it kind of backfired on, on us a little bit, and that's why the squad started disbanding. Their era was coming to an end, the Chicano squad officers were told. They were no longer needed. Back in 1979, when the Chicano squad was created, there were only a few Spanish-speaking officers in town. But by 2010, there were more than 900. We felt that we had already accomplished what we set out to do. What we set out to do is to stabilize the uh, Houston law enforcement with the community back again to build that confidence again. And we felt like we had done so much with the community. In 2011, the Houston police officers who were once a part of the Chicano squad could be found dispersed throughout various units. Cecil stayed in homicide, where he continued to work cases diligently as a detective. Until one day, his captain said, Mosqueda, you know, you've been around a long time like I have. That's what the captain was saying. And you're probably near retirement. Maybe one day, Cecil said, but not yet. Cecil hadn't taken a vacation in years. He loved his job. He wasn't quite ready to walk away. But Cecil's captain told him that a complaint had been filed against him for violating policies in an investigation. So while that was being sorted out, he had two choices. Move to the major assaults division or work the homicide desk, answering the phones for the entire division. Cecil wanted to stay in homicide, where he'd given decades of his life. So phones it was. That's how he punished me. You remember, the target was already there for the complaint with the EEOC and, and the lawsuit. Now this complaint was here, and he says, I got him now. Finally, in 2016, HPD dealt him a final blow when it threatened to change its pension fund that financed the retirements of so many officers. Cecil felt the need to speak up about what was happening and was interviewed by KHOU. It's been my whole life. Cecil Mosqueda is about to walk away from his love of more than four decades, wearing the badge for the Houston Police Department. And it, it is a hard decision, I think, for any officer, to tell you the truth. Not just me, any officer, uh, if they love the work that they do. Mosqueda's work includes his service on HPD's Chicano squad formed after the Moody Park riots. He spent the last 37 years as a homicide detective and decided to leave now out of fear of losing some of his pension benefits. That had something to do with it, but I know as I lead the department that I did the best, best job. That's all. You can hear the emotion in Cecil's voice. This was clearly a heartbreaking decision. To him, it felt like HPD no longer cared about him. All that knowledge I had, let it go. That experience I had, let it go. Did the department say, hey, C's, we like what you got. Can we get you as a trainer in the police academy and train these guys how to be? Let it go. In 2016, after 42 years and seven months on the force, After barely making it out of the academy, 
becoming one of the founding members of the Chicano Squad. Hundreds of homicides solved. Cecil Mosqueda finally retired. In the end, there weren't any medals or celebrations. He didn't get a gold watch. Cecil walked away without pomp and circumstance, much the same way he had joined HPD years earlier. I got real emotion because that was my whole livelihood. That was my family there, the police department. And when you go, it's like I tell people, I said, the skill was up to 95, 100 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden you get down, go to zero. But there was one upside to retirement. It finally allowed Cecil the opportunity to begin to mend his personal relationships. But it wasn't easy. He'd missed most of his daughter's milestones as they'd grown up. Birthdays, recitals, holidays. Now, one of his daughters even was a parent herself. Cecil hoped it wasn't too late. From that hot August day in 1979, when the Chicano squad first walked into the dusty, cramped room with the single table and solitary typewriter, all the way to 2016, Cecil and the rest of the squad had given everything to their jobs. They'd sacrificed so much along the way. Marriages, relationships with children, sleep, They'd done it all, with fewer resources and larger caseloads than other units. And they'd done it for the victims that, before the squad had come along, were often forgotten by police. In August of 2010, the Houston Police Department opened a sparkly new Houston Police Museum at 1200 Walker, the new police headquarters. A helicopter hangs from the ceiling, soaring over old patrol cars and display cases showing off old uniforms, badges, weapons and photos and write-ups of police of various ranks whose legacies were remembered heroically by HPD. In the entire museum, there was no mention of the Chicano squad. They were omitted from the official HPD story. Next time on Chicano Squad. With the legacy of America's first all-Latino homicide squad on the line, an effort to write the historic record is undertaken. It would take ingenuity and sacrifice, and a little bit of that renegade spirit the Chicano Squad embodied. But a small group of people are determined to force the Houston Police Department to finally recognize the Chicano Squad. En esta ciudad hay necesidad, cutting the in-between and swimming upstream. Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our show is produced by Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Associate producers for this episode are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Betubiza. Our show was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nashat Kurwa and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design from Brandon McFarlane. 
Our theme music was composed by the amazing Brownout. Fact checking by Charlotte Silver. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nishat Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacy Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristela Alonso. If you like this episode and think this story is important, then you obviously have great taste. And one of the best ways to support us is to share it with your family and friends wherever you listen to podcasts. It's also important to share to ensure that stories like these keep getting told. <laughs>